time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War Show. This is episode 66. <sighs> Good year. Potsdam, Ray. Potsdam. 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 Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, I want to start off by talking about the fact that uh, Stalin arrived mm. in Potsdam uh, a day after... The, he was supposed to, like a day late. But uh, something we didn't get into with Michael Nyberg. Michael Nyberg suggests in his book that it may have been a ruse on behalf of Stalin. Why would he play such a ruse? I like that word, if you haven't noticed. A ruse on them, Ray. Ruse. Yeah, um, give them a free day because you know they've they've already come prepared. They've got their notes done. Give them a free day. Show up a day late, and perhaps they'll do what FDR did in, in Yalta, um, the previously. You know, let's take a tour. Let's get out and about. Let's see what's going on. Let's see what you know where the clubs are going. But really, get a sense of the, to my mind, the absolute total destruction of Berlin. And so, one, they'll know what they're dealing with. And two, maybe they'll be thinking, well, if Berlin is like this, then how fucking bad could between here and Moscow be? I mean, everything just must be obliterated. So to really give these Westerners, these soft, cushy, soft hand, pink uh, Westerners an idea of the absolute shit that is going to, the work that has to be done. And then obviously what Soviet Russia has suffered as well. Now, as Michael Nyberg pointed out in our interview with him, most of these guys, if not all of them, uh, the Americans and the British I'm talking about here, had seen war before. The The leaders of these countries had yeah. been involved in World War One and World War Two to varying extents. Um, they weren't new to the concept of war and destruction, but World yeah. War One didn't happen in major metropolitan areas so much it happened out in fields and villages and fields and places like that it didn't happen in the middle of capital great capital cities the great capital cities of europe um now london had been bombed at this you know obviously uh and there was quite a bit of destruction but it was nothing like nothing like berlin um, I don't think Truman had been to Europe since the beginning of World War Two, so he hasn't seen any of this. World War One, true enough. What? You said you said World War Two. He hadn't been there since I think his time in 
Uh, well, World I meant he hadn't been there in World War Two. I mean, he hadn't seen any of the other destruction. Right, right. I mean, oh, right. Stalin and and Churchill uh, have seen the destruction in various parts of Europe um, during World War Two. Right. You know, they traveling to Yalta and that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, Truman had, and so it's all new to him. But the destruction of Berlin was astounding. More than seventy five percent of all dwellings were un- were uninhabitable by the end of the war. Jeez. And a lot of that, as we've discussed on previous episodes, was the result of a deliberate strategy by Bomber Harris, your um, great-grandfather, um, yeah. with his, exactly. his de-housing strategy of bombardment, which is, yeah, we'll just fucking go and bomb the civilians' houses. That'll, that'll show them. Can't, you can't work in the munitions factories... If you don't get a good night's right. rest, everyone knows that. So we'll bomb the fuck out of your house, kill your wife and children, and let's see how you work in the factories then, motherfucker. That was his. I, that's that's a quote yeah. from his actual strategy. Right. Well, yeah, they they kept hitting the factories, and they're like, no matter how many times we hit these factories, somehow they clean it up just enough to keep producing war goods or whatever. So you're right. Let's bomb their houses. They won't have any place to sleep. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll work. We'll wipe out the workers, and there will be no one to work. So yeah, it was obviously a horrendous policy, but you know, it was pretty much winner take all, and the loser would be occupied. So yeah, they utterly destroyed and killed civilians and their and their homes just to try to stop their ability to keep producing war goods. Now the war had also destroyed five hundred thousand French buildings. wasn't the destruction Obviously, wasn't just in uh, Germany. I read that Allied air raids killed sixty seven thousand French men and women. Yeah, that's a Churchill supposedly agonized over that a bit, but hey, that's where the enemy's at, so that's where you bomb. Fuck, you don't hear about that yeah. that sort of n- number new, a lot. Sixty-seven thousand yeah. French killed by Allied bombings. Um, so in Nyberg's book, he's got um, some interesting diary notes from a range of the Americans and the British uh, after they toured Berlin on July 16, 1945. Jimmy Burns, uh, the new Secretary of State, noted in his diary, we were greatly impressed by the streams of people walking along the road. They were mostly grandparents and children. As a rule, they carried their possessions on their backs. We didn't know where they were going, and it is doubtful that they did. Despite all that we had read of the destruction, the extent of the devastation shocked us. It brought home the suffering that total war now visits upon old folks, women, and children. You know, and, and I've gone back and looked at... We, we have video footage. Uh, we have uh, uh, photographs of Berlin. Uh, and, and they are horrifying. But I think it's a bit like... We, we, we see this sort of stuff of Syria these days. We see lots of drone footage over um, Damascus, different right. parts of Syria. We go, holy shit, look at that. That looks horrible. But I imagine if you're walking through it, not only is, yeah. is the visceral impact of it going to be significantly higher... But uh, one of the other things that people pointed out, people that were in Berlin uh, on this day, was the smell of just hundreds of thousands of dead bodies in all of these buildings that hadn't been removed, hadn't been cleaned up. I mean, the war had been over for several months at this stage, but 
no one's uh, you know had the time or the the yeah. ability to go and uh, clean all of the corpses out of the rubble. Uh, so you can just imagine. And we also what that must used be like. in. Yeah, and I was just going to add, we uh, also used incendiary bombs. So, yeah, not only are there dead people laying around, but there are char- charred bodies as well. And you can just imagine the stench. And, and I just thought it was so ironic that the, the Russians were, rightly so, had security everywhere. They had checkpoints, they had security, they had patrols, that kind of stuff. But on this particular day, I think it was July 16th, um, they... they the Westerners had nothing to do because Stalin wasn't there yet, and they go around. The Russians absolutely did not impede their progress. They they let them go wherever they want. They didn't harass them. They saluted as they went by. And so you, you can't definitively say that Stalin planned this out. But if you look at all the circumstantial evidence, it certainly seems to indicate that he wanted these guys to see this firsthand. Um, and, and at the very least, maybe just to shock them, you know, before the negotiations started. But yeah, so these guys were able to go pretty much anywhere they wanted. And between what they saw and the smell and just the lack of hope, a lot of them were wondering, would Europe really ever be rebuilt again? Because you've got to think all the way from the coast, uh, you know, from D-Day all the way to the gates of Moscow, there's destruction. Uh, from this war, and so how in the hell do you rebuild that? How much money and time will that will that take? And I think from Stalin's perspective as well, it it helps him get them at Potsdam just to think about what he has to deal with in rebuilding his own country. He goes, well, you see this around you? Pretty much this yeah. is what my own country looks yeah. like, right? Um, as uh, Nyberg yeah. said, 20 to- So I wasn't joking about reparations. I- yeah. Yeah. 20 to 25 million dead. Jeez. Yeah. Now, for the time being, Berlin looks as bad as destroyed as any city could possibly ever be. Of course, two and a half weeks later, we're going to have a new benchmark for what destruction of a city looks like. But at this point in time, Berlin is the uh, doubtful uh, or the, the... the the, the uh, unfortunate winner of the prize of most destroyed city. Right. I yeah, there there were people going. You know, there there was a lot of British notes, uh, British people taking notes. They they were saying like they could go down entire streets and not one building was erect. Everything was rubble, and they would see smoke coming out of a stack, which obviously meant somebody was trying to live their life beneath the rubble, you know, protecting maybe elderly people or children. But yes, so these Germans have been reduced to living in these piles of rubble to try to survive. And of course, the people at Potsdam are pretty busy because it's July, but you've got to think it's only a matter of time before winter's coming. So as bad as it is now, it's going to get worse in a couple of months. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, not a yeah. One RAF flight lieutenant wrote: "Not a single building in this district remains. No shops, flats, or hotels. The damage has to be seen to be believed. Words cannot describe the situation." They estimate that 25 million Germans had no homes in 1945. Now that is about seven times the population of Truman's home state of Missouri. And the country obviously lacked its entire infrastructure. Everything had been wiped out. So how you rebuild from that uh, is, well, it must have been very, very difficult for anyone to wrap their head around. I'm sure a lot of people 
question, I think this comes through in the diary notes, is it even possible for Germany or for Europe right. as a whole to rebuild from World War II? I mean, looking back on it today, we go, well, shit, Germany will become the economic powerhouse of Europe. But at that point in time, they really must have questioned, will this just become a wasteland now? Will everyone just, will it become like a ghost town? The entire country and in large parts of Europe, will people just go, okay, fucking too hard. Let's go somewhere else. Who? No one really knew at that point in time um, what the what what the future held. Yeah, and and one of the things that um, no one's even thinking about yet because they're just getting there and they're staggered by the sights and smells and everything. You just you just imagine how many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of orphans there are. So yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, but these guys have got to focus on high level stuff. There'll be other um, committees that will take care of this, but still, they are profoundly affected by what they see on this it has to be the most strangest of tours of the city you know a lot of the um yeah a lot of the orphans in berlin uh were obviously uh distraught distressed they'd lost their entire families uh parents grandparents siblings um their pets all their belongings their toys but there was at least one little orphan who um, she had a vision for the future. And I don't know about you, but I, I think that is what Germany needed at the time, Ray. Just that, that sense of visionary leadership. Yeah. Yeah. She, they put it on a loop uh, throughout she, the city. She went on to become the first female chancellor of Germany. Young, a lot of people don't know that Angela Merkel's real name is uh, original name was Annie the Orphan Child from World no. War Two. Yeah, that's yeah. No. She changed the name to, from Annie to Angela, uh, but that's that's where she got started. Uh, there you go. Not many people know that. Um, suddenly sound like Trump yeah. when I said that. Not many people know that, but you know, not many people know it. But uh, Angela Merkel used to be a man, <laughs> and before that, she was an orphan, and name was Annie. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> now you'll know this, but the capital, the capital of Germany. <laughs> Is Jerusalem? Everyone knows that that's the capital of Germany. Okay. <laughs> um, speaking, I I did want to I did want to throw in yeah. Go on. No, I just wanted to say real quick that um, World War Two, like any other any other war, but certainly World War Two, is replete with stories about people who. Um, you know, there's a bomb or there's an attack or whatever, and certain friends and family members die. And these people who don't die are trying to get on. And the situation that they're in or that they find themselves in is so bad. They wished they said, you know, times because they write and they and they write this stuff down later. They wished they had died because trying to live through this and trying to picture rebuilding after this is so hard and it seems so impossible that it would just have been easier to die. And they considered some of their relatives to be lucky. I mean, these Germans and we're going to get into this later, um, but they for right now, I mean, they are just looking at absolute desolation. And they know, because this has already started to happen, the Russians are there to not only lord it over them, but to take everything they have and to get as much revenge as as they possibly can. And, and it starts right away. One of the ways many they got revenge was by stealing shit and touristy knickknacks. Um, I found it fascinating uh, yeah. that obviously the the main attraction for the American and British uh, tourists of Berlin on this day was the Reich Chancellery building 
the bunker where yeah. Hitler had spent his final days. Now, obviously, just a heap of rubble. But it contained amazing amounts of medals and documents. And it basically became a souvenir shop. And by shop, I mean just stealing shit. Um, pretty much everyone yeah. uh, who went to visit the uh, old Chancellery building just took souvenirs um, or paid a, a Russian sentry to escort them through the rubble so they could go down and below and have a look at the bunkers and what remained. Uh, there was one British delegate who right. took stationery featuring Hitler's name and the address of the Chancellery. Yeah. Imagine the fucking Jeez. field day he must have had writing joke notes to people on that when he got home. Uh <laughs> I'm still alive. <laughs> send send twenty million pounds. Send my stuff to Argentina. <laughs> yeah. uh, Harry Hopkins apparently oh took God. books from Hitler's yeah. own library. Another American took a chair belonging yeah. to Eva Braun. Joseph Davies, the former U uh, USSR ambassador, took chunks of concrete as well. <laughs> He's, you got to be low down on the. You got to get there late in the day. Somebody got fucking Hitler's personalized right. stationery, and you take chunks of concrete. That's when you know you've you've got there too late. You should have woken up yeah. earlier. Now he also got a box of medals given to him by a Russian sentry. Um, he wrote later that night in his diary: "The Russians can't do too much for a friend, just as they can't be rude enough to those they consider their enemies." Maybe they're the ones they just gave concrete to. Yeah. Sorry, you're too late for metal and stationery. Here, have have block of concrete. It's good concrete. It's concrete. It's good concrete. There's a brick. Build your home with this brick. Yes, this would be the foundation. But but Harry Truman's bodyguard, to me, got the creme de la creme when he steals a copy of Mein Kampf from Hitler's bunker. That That's pretty impressive, and I'm, I'm hoping it's autographed. I don't know, but... Wow, I mean, this guy's got a, he's got something to pass down for the next couple of generations. You know, I <clears throat> I'm a big fan of Nazi um, design. Here uh, we go. <laughs> uh -huh. No, no, no. You you know this about me. You know that I, I'm a big fan of um, just the 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 from a from a visual perspective. Uh, the, the what the Nazis did. Absolutely. It was it was a Astounding, just the um, from the architecture of Albert Speer. I mean, which is just amazing, timeless, brilliant, amazing stuff. A tragedy uh, to me that some of it got destroyed. Oh, yeah. the, the, lots yeah. of it survived, thankfully. Um, through to the the uniforms, I've actually got a book on um, sort of Nazi uniforms. Just the design of them. They look fucking. Badass man, like everything that they did. Oh yeah, the, to the swastika, which the Hugo Hit, Boss made their suits. Yeah, Hitler himself. Yeah, yeah the Hugo Boss um, stuff I've got. It's amazing. Hitler himself, uh, as far as we know, came up with the flag design. Now, probably, I I would argue, right, the greatest logo of all time in terms of logo design. You know, I run a marketing business. We do logo logo design. Um, you know, whenever clients are saying, what do you think makes a good logo? I go, see the, the, the Nazi flag over there. Pretty fucking good design. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, hey, listen. And they backed up their brand. Listen, well, yes. 
like brand values, everyone knows what it means. Uh, I think it has global recognition. Mitch Trouble. Uh, it's still, people are still right, walking down right. streets of your country waving it today. I mean, all these years later. And have tattoos. Have tattoos, exactly. Yep. Tattoos, um, you know, Charlie Manson, until he passed away recently, had it tattooed into his forehead with a knife. I mean, when people start tattooing your Fuck. logo on their forehead with a knife, you know, uh, you're onto <laughs> you've something. Done something. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, yeah. genius. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so, but I feel bad when I go into antique stores oh. and I'm looking at Nazi medals and just, you know, Nazi paraphernalia. Part of me goes, fuck, I'd love that on my wall, man, because that's badass. And then another part of me goes, really? Do you want to be that guy? Look, you know they're going to arrest no. you. <laughs> you know they're going to get you one of these days. Really, when they come to arrest you, it's bad enough that yeah, you've got... Don't make it easy. bad enough that you've got photos of Stalin and Castro and a poster <laughs> of Mao Zedong and Ho Chi Minh up on your wall. But... Yeah. Uh, do you really want them to come in and find Nazi <laughs> medals on your wall? No. Really? Is that is, how's your defense going to go then? They'll put you under the cell. You've got busts of Napoleon, yeah, yeah. Alexander the Great, and uh, Nazi paraphernalia. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's it's yeah. My defense, my even my defense attorney is going to go fuck yeah. it, man. That's that's too hard. I can't defend you. You're a Nazi. Yeah. No, 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 I'm not a Nazi. <laughs> no, I just admire. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I just admire their... Like, I'm a Nazi admirer. I just admire their graphic design. That's it. Not their politics. Just the graphic design and, and their architecture. Come on. Um, anyway, but I felt better reading this going... I have, even even these yeah. guys, Hitler's enemies, like literally fought him on the fucking battlefield. They're like, oh shit, we're taking this stuff, man. This is cool. We're going to take this home. This is badass. I figure if it's okay for them to take it... <laughs> It's okay for me to have it. That's my argument. Yeah. They were taking pens, typewriters, yeah. ashtrays, ink stands, books, paperweights, furniture, anything that had a swastika on it, um, iron crosses and original boxes Damn. that Hitler had prepared to give to the defenders of Berlin as a reward, but apparently that didn't happen. Um, you know, they, they, they all took this shit, which I find uh, uh, fascinating, I guess. Now, for those of you who eat lunch, who listen to this podcast uh, while during your lunch break, this is for you. So Lord Morin, Churchill's physician, could not get the smell of the city out of his mind. He felt nauseous for hours afterwards. He said, or he wrote, it was like the first time that I saw a surgeon open a belly and the intestines gushed out. So, yeah, these, these guys, even these doctors, even these hardened generals who have seen this kind of stuff before, even these guys are overwhelmed with the sensory overload overload of the of their uh, july 16th tour yeah even general ismay said that after the berlin tour i was sorry that i'd gone sightseeing my first act on returning to babelsberg was to plunge into a hot bath with a great deal of disinfectant in it my second was mm. to take a very strong drink to get the taste out of my mouth and you know it's just ironic that those are the first two things i did when i got home from vegas last year um <laughs> Now, Potsdam itself yeah. was only six miles from Berlin and was completely untouched. Uh, it just had nothing there worth destroying. Apparently, uh, there was you know no no factories, no infrastructure there. Um, just a palace and uh, some nice architecture. 
So it was pretty. It was yeah. beautiful. Babelsberg, Potsdam, those areas were, were in pristine condition for the visitors. Oh, there was one other thing that happened in Berlin, though, I wanted to mention before we move on. Um, Churchill reviewed yeah. the British troops. Now, we have to understand, um, and we're going to talk about this in a lot more detail in the next episode, I think, but um, the 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 UK election happened on July 5th. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So uh, it, was, it was kind of a bizarre situation. They'd had the election before Potsdam, a couple of weeks before Potsdam, but they didn't get the results. The results were going to be delayed for three weeks. Uh, now, as I understand it, this was primarily because there were still three million British troops uh, mm-hmm. uh, overseas uh, in places like Burma, still fighting the the Eastern War, uh, Eastern Asian War, and uh, they they all had to have the opportunity to vote. Postal votes, obviously, getting in and out of uh, bat- the battlegrounds as it takes a long time. So there was this big delay. So Potsdam is taking place while the, the election's over, but they're waiting for the results to come in now. Uh, Churchill, when he's in Berlin, reviews the British troops. You know, they have a little stand. He's up at the stand. A lot of lot of the mm-hmm. the, the knob knobs are up there, um, including Clement Attlee. And as the troops march past, Churchill raises his fa- famous V for victory salute. But instead of calling out his name, the troops, as they march oh, by, sure. call out Clement Attlee's name. Attlee! 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 <laughs> and I've seen video footage of this, and Churchill's looking like, what the fuck? And Attlee, who's sitting just a little bit behind him, has this huge shit-eating grin right. on his face. <laughs> now, um, Attlee yeah. was his deputy prime minister in the, the wartime coalition that they'd had for the last five years. But he's also the leader of the Labor mm-hmm. Party, political opposition to Churchill, and he's the other contender for the election. But as Michael Nyberg pointed out, everybody at this point, including Churchill and Attlee and Stalin and the entire British media right. and Truman and everybody thought Churchill right. was a shoo-in in this election because he was the great war hero. And everyone everyone was absolutely convinced he, he was going to win. It may not be a landslide, but it was going to be a very comfortable victory for Churchill. Yeah. But this, uh, where people are calling out the soldiers marching past Churchill in fucking Berlin, of all places, are calling out Atlee's <laughs> name. To his face. To his yeah. face. Damn. Must have Do been a bit of a hold on. What the fuck is going on right now? And we will cover <laughs> yeah. that more in our next episode. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I just, I just, yeah. Oh, I just want to, I just want to make a point here uh, again. I know I've said this uh, a couple of times, but we're going to get through Potsdam quickly, folks. We're gonna, we're gonna brush yeah. over Potsdam over the next couple of episodes. So um, don't worry that we're going to be dragging this motherfucker out. Right. No, we are going to brush up against it like I'm going to do Thomas in North Carolina in January. So, we'll, you know, it'll be a high level Passover and, uh, and then we'll move on from there. Because like Cam said earlier, um, we've already covered the details. And so when we do talk about it at a high level, it will all make sense because of the 25 freaking hours of Yalta. Yeah. Now, 
as uh, you, you pointed out, I think in the Nyberg episode, um, <clears throat> uh, the atmosphere was the atmosphere at, at Potsdam was very friendly between the key players. I mean, they just won the war in Europe. They, you know, even when they were at Yalta, they kind of knew it was it was gonna they were gonna win it, but they hadn't won it. Um, and uh, in between Yalta in February and now, uh, Hitler had committed suicide. Maybe supposedly we they didn't know that though. Not all of them knew that, as we'll right. get to soon. Um, but they'd taken Berlin at huge cost to the Soviets, the Red Army, as we, we talked about in an earlier episode. So the war is over. So everyone's very jubilant. Hey, we won the war. Um, and unlike Yalta and, and the Tehran conference, this conference wasn't a secret. Everyone knew where it was. They didn't have to hide the fact from the Germans or from Hitler that they were having a conference now because he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> Or maybe in hiding in Argentina. Yeah. No one really knew. Um, yeah. Still, quite honestly, I don't know. I, as far as I'm concerned, no proof that he's dead. He could still be in Argentina as far as I know. Um, or Laughing right now, listening to us. Or on his secret moon base on the dark side of the moon. Is uh, I saw a great film about that. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen <laughs> yeah, that. but Yeah, uh, Loved yeah it. It, it, it convinced me. I think it was a documentary. I don't think it was a film. Uh, was it called? The fucking Iron <laughs> something? Iron... Re- Iron, yeah. oh, iron God. something. Anyway, something. Uh, it's good. Irons. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So everyone knew where it was, and you talk. You brought this up in um, the interview with Nyberg. So journalists, more than two hundred journalists and forty photographers, made their way to Berlin, hoping to cover it. Now, remember back at Yalta, the, the the there was like one official American photographer and one official Soviet photographer who thought. He missed the shot and Stalin was going to have him killed. And journalists right. weren't allowed there because it was secret. Now they're, they, they all know where it is. But as you pointed out uh, in the Nobeck episode, they weren't actually allowed into the conference. So they just made yeah. cunts of themselves and started covering all of the lavish parties that were going on at great expense while everyone else is starving. And, uh, and and it's a clever strategy, right? Well, if you won't let us cover the fucking real news, we'll just cover shit to make right. you look bad uh, and embarrass you into letting us cover what's really going on. And you, you got to know that that was a deliberate strategy on behalf of the media barons at the yeah. time. And uh, it worked. I wonder how often... That tactic is used today. Well, if you won't give me the story that I want, I'll just cover the shit that you don't want me to cover until you you give in and then let me cover the story I really want to cover. But but Trump has come up with the ultimate Trump card, no pun intended, and he could just call it fake news, and thirty percent of the Republicans will believe him. But anyway, but that's it was amazing. These guys didn't have to make anything up. These reporters did not have to lie. They did not have to make anything up. I think, um, they had to fly in milk from Britain because was it, um, at least tummy no. that was upset or something. Anthony, no, Anthony Eden had an ulcer. Anthony Eden. Yeah. He, he couldn't take the German milk or, or something like that. And so they had to fly in milk from Britain. And he already talked about the sheet music from Paris. And I think there was something from, for, um, I can't remember, but yeah, just extravagant meals. Uh, these guys were not starving. Uh, they probably gained a couple pounds while they were there and all around them is complete desolation. So they didn't have to make it up. They just told the truth. But you know, even then when they, when they struck the deal, Stalin didn't care. He's like, you can write whatever the fuck you want, but 
it's not going to get back to my readers back uh, back where I live because I control everything. It was the two Westerners who had to had to cave under the pressure. Mm. Now, as we pointed out in the Nyberg episode two, um, unlike Yalta, uh, only the big three participated in this. France, China, Italy, Poland were shut out. It was really yeah. just. Uh, uh, you know, I think there's a number of ways you can see this. Um, obviously, Stalin in particular didn't have any time for the countries that had caved in or been defeated. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was a winner's conference, not a loser's conference. <laughs> but also, I think on top of that is they didn't, they deliberately, these great powers didn't want to return to the pre-war world. I mean, it wasn't, um, okay, well, France, Italy... You know, you've been great powers in the past. Uh, yes, you deserve a seat at the table. It's like, no, no. This is a new world, new world order that we're creating here where we right. get to determine what happens. And quite frankly, we don't give a fuck what you think. We, we will tell you the role that you're going to play uh, in the post-war world. You don't get a seat at the table. We don't give a fuck. It's quite blatant at this point at Potsdam. Yes, they do have a role to play in the United Nations, uh, but in terms of the decisions that are being made at Potsdam, they don't even get a seat at the table. And uh, it's really these three white men uh, that are going to determine the the lay of the land, at least in the foreseeable future. And one of the things that's really ironic is that you know, the Americans are still talking about pulling out as fast as they possibly can. They still have to deal with uh, Japan. They, they certainly want to get their troops home. They want to work on their economy, keep that going, get all these guys in there uh, back home and get jobs. Britain knows it's going to need France to some degree if America pulls out um, the vast majority of their troops. They're going to need they're going to need France. Having said that, Churchill purposefully does not stop by and say hi to Charles de Gaulle, the leader of France. He he is in France for a couple of weeks before Potsdam. Potsdam, uh, someone loaned him a chateau. He drank a lot. He painted. He didn't look at any of his papers that he, that he was supposed to. And then he goes home just to meet up with the guys, and they all fly over or sail over together. But even though he's going to need France, Churchill is just so burnt out on the six foot whatever four turd that uh that um charles de gaulle is he just can't take him anymore so he's going to skip by there but you're absolutely right these three guys are going to decide everything and you can really be honest and say it wasn't three it was two churchill was just going to try to like uh mr nyberg said try to rekindle that special relationship but it's really the two winners the two victors that are going to decide the fate of this you know this very large chunk of the planet that we live on they are going to decide what happens to europe yeah yeah churchill is uh, i mean as nyberg pointed out america uh, sorry america you know our kingdom is fucked economically bankrupt mm-hmm. And it wasn't just as a result of the cost and expense of the war either. I mean, uh, I'll go into this more in the next episode, but like the United States, the United Kingdom had been economically stagnant for 20-odd years, 20, 25 years, uh, before 1945. Uh, and so, you know, massive unemployment. Of course, they had the, 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 we, the world had the Great Depression in, in 1929, so... The 30s, they had been fucked. But even before that, in the 20s, they had a lot of economic problems. 
um, partly as a result of World War One and some of the trade changes that happened after World War One. But um, they were they were uh, screwed financially. Uh, plus, they're going to have to dismantle their economic block as a result, and all of the uh, trade advantages that came with that. So uh, they're really yeah yeah still at this point as we went over time and time again at Yolda. No one really gives a fuck what the Brits think. Um, and and I think this also played into part of the reason why Churchill just was a stammering idiot at Potsdam. According to his own team of people, um, they were even more embarrassed right. about the shit that came out of his mouth at Potsdam than they had been at Yolda, which is saying something. Um, and I think part of it had to do, not only, you know, he's, he's in his early 70s. Um, he's, he's had a, He's worked his ass off for the last five years. Uh, he's an alcoholic, and he's just burnt out. Yeah, and uh, he did have this little holiday yeah. in the south of France at a you know a nice house on the beach down there. Um, didn't I, I think he was just on vacation with his family? They just finished the election. He's going. They finished the war. Finished the election. He's going to Potsdam. I think he. Uh, and as far as he knew, as far as everyone told him, he was going to be prime minister for the next three, four, five years anyway. Yeah. So little little holiday. Bit of painting, smoking. I've seen some footage um, of that yep. vacation. It's great to see him uh, painting, smoking a cigar, walking along the beach with Clementine, smoking a cigar, uh, doing everything. Getting out of a plane in Potsdam, smoking a cigar. There's never, there's never a shot of Churchill in these old newsreels where he doesn't have a big long right. fucking cigar in his. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's rock, rock and roll, yeah. rock and roll. Rock and roll, Easton. <laughs> well, I just wanted to. <laughs> well, we're just going back to the two main players. I mean, Truman when he when he goes to Potsdam, his pretty much his main thing is, what what is it going to take? What's the price for Stalin to um to uh, come into the war against Japan as early as they possibly can? Obviously, wants to make sure that the USSR is still going to go for the UN after Truman bitch slapping Molotov in the Oval Office, and just to make it even harder for Truman before this gets started. Several um, dozen of Roosevelt's administration showed up, um, like uh, the Secretary of Navy James Forrestal, <coughs> Secretary of War Henry Stimson, uh, and Avril Harriman, who fly there on their own dime because they think there's no way Truman can handle this without them. But what they're going to realize, that, as we touched on in the interview, Truman doesn't trust them. He's got his own people, and this is not a war conference per se. The war in Europe is over. This is a post-war political situation, and you don't need these military men. So a lot of people are showing up. Truman doesn't have time for them. He shuts a lot of them out. He just wants to know what what's the price tag for Stalin coming in on Japan because the United States military has already ordered 100,000 body bags in anticipation of the first phase of the invasion of the home islands. They want Stalin's help as, as quickly as they can possibly get it. And Truman, who is an avid poker, poker player, was certainly willing to pay a fair, a fair um, deal to get Russia into the war with Japan. Which he had already committed to, but their relations had been tense in recent months yeah. uh, since the death of Roosevelt. So, yeah, he, he needs to just confirm that. Now, the Big Three met 13 separate times at Potsdam. Nine of those occurred before the announcement of the results of the British general election on July 26th. So they met nine times. Then they took a break for a couple of days when the British contingent went back home for the tabulation of the results. And then some of them came back. 
Um, now, for the first <laughs> first seven days, though, um, we have the usual characters, uh, Churchill and Stalin, plus, of course, Truman, who didn't really deviate from FDR's position at Yalta, although the accounts say that whilst he probably... FDR would have done the same thing uh, at Potsdam that Truman did, uh, you know, argued for the same um, outcomes. FDR would have been a lot more diplomatic about it. Truman, as we've learned in recent episodes, the John Wayne president was just like, well, listen here, (laughs) Pelgrim, I'm not going to punch you like hell I won't. He just thinks he can go in there with his big swinging dick and 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 again, right. I, I still believe, it, um, based on my uh, back of the cornflakes packet degree in psychology, that uh, he was uh, masking his obvious inexperience and the fact that no one thought he, he knew right. what he was doing, and and he was out of his depth with bravado and uh, this this arrogant exterior here, hoping that. If he played the tough guy, no one, no one would figure out that he was actually scared shitless and knew he was out of his depth. That's my theory on right. Truman at this stage of things anyway. Um, and, and just to add to that, I mean, he is incredibly naive, but like Mr. Nyberg said, I mean, he's got the backing of the Senate for the UN. He's got the backing of the Senate for the, uh, the economic agreement. So he is good. He is not making the same mistake that Wilson made in 1919. However, he is going up against a guy who is going to just outplay him to such a degree that Tr- Truman won't know until later that he's been outplayed. So he can bluff all he wants, but he is not picking up on a lot of things that FDR probably would have picked up on had he been of sound mind and sound body. Yeah, but then again, everyone always criticizes FDR for having the wool pulled over his eyes by Stalin at Yalta. I don't know that he would have done any different um, at Potsdam. And by the way, I don't I don't buy this Stalin tricked everybody uh, line of argument. I think... As I've said many times over the course of the show so far, I think it's a fluid thing here. I think uh, Stalin at this juncture wants what he wants, and I think he's been very clear about what right. he wants. As things progress and the bomb happens and then the Marshall Plan happens um, and the Americans make a huge economic play for Europe, control of Europe, Stalin has to change up and play a different game. Um, right. I, I think... Uh, if the Americans had not done those two things, or if they'd at least brought the Soviets in on the bomb, made them equal partners, as we'll see down the track, quite a few people in the American administration thought they should do, um, then, including um, Kennan, I think, uh, they, they, you know, things may not have turned out the way they did. Anyway, at, at Potsdam, Stalin and Molotov have got a good cop, bad cop routine going, which I found fascinating. Uh, you know, Molotov would stand up and be the bad guy. He would uh, right. start banging his fist and ranting, and then Stalin would just uh, call him over and whisper sweet nothings in his ear. It's okay, my friend. It's okay. Calm down. And and Molotov would be like, oh, I got this. Yeah. I got this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Molotov would calm down. Pull me back. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, according to Nyberg's analysis in his book, even though Molotov certainly had a reputation for being pretty bold and direct um, himself, you know, this was this was Stalin's plan to appear like the good 
uh, Russian who was uh, easy to work with, friendly, because uh, it's the first time Truman's met him. Obviously, Truman already doesn't like Molotov, but uh, this is Stalin's attempt to make a good impression. Oh, I apologize for my colleague. He is a little <laughs> bit emotional. You know, he gets so caught up in things. It's okay. I'll sort him out yeah. afterwards. You, it's okay, my friend. Don't panic. I got this. But I, I just have to. I, I just have to add, I mean, what would it have been like to have Stalin as your boss? I mean, what's your, what's your, what's the percentage that you're allowed to screw up before you take it out and shot? So, I mean, Stalin says to him, I want you to play this role and I'll come and back it up. But what's too far or what's not, what's not hard enough to, or what's not bad enough playing bad cop? You just gotta, I would have been a nervous wreck my entire life having to work for this guy and to, and to answer to him. Uh, it just would have drove me to drink and to shoot myself. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have to have a, a, a certain sense of um, fatalism working for Stalin. Look, I'm probably going to die yeah. young here, so uh, <laughs> let's just... Enjoy it while I can. <laughs> rape a lot of women. Oh, I don't think Molotov was there. It was Berea, maybe, but I don't remember Molotov. Um, oh, Berea, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm getting my Russian rapist mixed up. I'm a big fan of Molotov, actually. I, I love Molotov. I like... like reading the uh, book that he sort of, the book of interviews with him from the 70s. He's, he's a funny dude, man. He, he had a good uh, right, good sense of humor. Um, uh, now, uh, one of the other interesting points I noted was that um, when the Americans uh, took over their portion of uh, Germany, uh, well, in fact, just their portion of Berlin, they... Um, had mm-hmm. 22 venereal disease centers built as a matter of priority. <laughs> Shit. Um, Shit. I'm not sure What are why. they doing? Uh, <laughs> look, uh, you know, Berlin's been completely destroyed. We're going to need to build, you know, we're going to need to build power. We're going to need to build roads. We're going to need to build... Uh, Soup kitchens. You know, water supplies. Yeah, food. And, oh, and venereal disease centers. That's a big one. They're gonna, <laughs> why? Why, oh, a lot why of is that? Oh, don't, don't, doesn't matter. Don't uh, just... Uh, <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah, don't. And don't bring your wives. Yeah. Um, now... Going into the conference, we, we've talked about what these guys wanted. Like Churchill just wanted to hang on uh, uh, and you know yeah. get something f- uh, for Britain out of this. Um, hopefully, get Truman on board, build his relationship with Truman. Hope the Americans would uh, give them some sort of an easy out after the war, help them rebuild economically, and help them keep bits of their empire. Stalin wants what Stalin always wants, which is we've said many, many times, is security and economic reparations. And maybe and maybe some peace for a while, so he can rebuild. Right, and also to look good and look strong back home, so he doesn't get shot himself. As unlikely as that is, it's always a possibility. Um, Truman, well, Truman wants uh, some hard decisions about Pol- the future of Poland, the future of uh, Germany, and the the division of the reparations, and uh, the the war against Japan. I guess these are the key things that he wants, but. As we've seen many times before, the Americans and the British go in there wanting hard decisions on things. Stalin, he's not big on hard decisions, uh, unless they're things involving how much money he's going to get. And, uh, uh, well, that's pretty much it. Everything else, and and which parts of uh, China and Japan he's going to get, uh, you know, the the islands, uh, those sorts of things afterwards. 
the warm portal ports that he wants. Everything else for Stalin is kind of like, my friend, there's no need to rush. Uh, we can talk about... Look, <laughs> Stalin actually said that he saw this as the first of many such meetings. We will come together many times. We will enjoy each other's company. Oh we will, we will, we will go out. We will eat. We will drink. We will party. Then we will go to a Great American Venereal Disease Center afterwards. It is all very beautiful. <laughs> no need to rush things right away, my friends. <laughs> Band of brothers. Yeah. Now, yeah. the longer the conference went on, the more frustrated apparently Truman became at the fact that he couldn't reach firm agreements. Like. He's used to American politics. Well, we're going to do this, right? Okay, my friend, what do you need? What do you need? You yeah. need pork, bar- pork barreling? Great. Well, I'll give you pork barreling. What do you need? You need pork barreling? All right, I'll give you... Everyone happy? We got to... Oh, okay. <laughs> speaking of pork barreling, uh, congratulations to all of my fellow Australians. Um, we, we passed same-sex marriage legal, legal, legalization? Legislation. <coughs> yeah. Yesterday, um, it was probably a week old by the time you've heard this, but we passed it. Uh, finally... After decades and decades of trying to uh, different attempts at trying to get it uh, passed here, I know we're late to the game. I think we're the twenty sixth country to introduce it, which uh, is a little bit embarrassing. But uh, congratulations to all of our uh, love wins, gay, lesbian uh, uh, listeners, friends, family, um, what have you. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, you know that we're big supporters. Of that, and not just because we uh, like a little bit of, uh, <laughs> you know, that ourselves. North Carolina love it. Oh right. Um, yeah, no, uh, it's 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 a it's a great day. As I said to somebody, on, somebody on Facebook replied to my comment on it. Oh, it makes no difference to me. And I go, well, listen. Every time your country does something right, something good, we should all celebrate because, quite honestly. There's a lot of shit that my country does that uh, I'm embarrassed about. I'm furious about. Um, and so when we when they actually do something good, I'm like, all right, well, fucking today's a good day. Let's just uh, today we can celebrate. Tomorrow, let's go back to being pissed off and angry about all of the stupid evil shit that they're doing. But let's take a moment to not today. Let's take a moment to say, yeah, well done. Give ourselves a round of applause. Anyway, back to yeah. So Stalin knew that. You know, he didn't. He's in a position of power. When you're in a position of power in any negotiation, you don't have. There's no hurry. You don't need to worry because yeah. you, you know you, you're going to get what you want over time. You don't need to give anything away. He knows that Truman uh, is discovering that for the first time. He wrote in a letter to somebody back home. I felt like blowing the roof off the palace. Um, <laughs> halfway through the conference, he wrote to his mother. I'm still in this godforsaken country. I'd hope to be finished by now. And then closer to the end, he said to Jimmy Burns, Jimmy, do you realize we've been here 17 whole days? Why in 17 days you can decide anything? Uh, yeah, he's, he's learning that the uh, Russians do things at their own fucking pace, my friend. Yeah. And if you don't have to decide, it's not good for them. They're not going to decide. And, and you just got to imagine Stalin using the good cop, bad cop, just played that off brilliantly and just made time tick by. And this American who, even though he's just become president, he's probably very quickly gotten used to having absolute authority. And now he's being, he's being um, delayed by this guy. But there's nothing you can do about it because, like you said earlier, their armies are the ones that have won. They're in possession of Berlin and the surrounding area. So they get to call the shots and you're going to have to work on uh, Stalin's timetable and no one knows what the hell that is. Yeah. Um, 
Now, I mentioned that the Americans wanted the Soviets to jump in uh, with the war against Japan, and the Soviets also wanted a piece of that action, as we've pointed out in previous episodes. And also, I think uh, Mr. Nyberg pointed this out. The Soviets uh, have got shit that they want to get out of that. They want to get back to Sakhalin Islands, and they want to get their warm water ports. They want to get a chunk of China. Um now, former Soviet ambassador to Great Britain, Ivan Maisky, actually had argued, though, that the uh, Soviets should not help the Americans and the British in Japan as payback for their delay in setting up the second front in Europe. Ooh. It would have been great if Stalin said, Damn, sure, sure we, will, sure, we will help you. But, uh, you know, I don't think we can do it next week. No, let me check my data. Maybe next month uh, no. we'll have to get back to you. We'll see. Of course, it wouldn't have made a lot of difference as it turned out. But, um, you know, he, he had things, he had gains yeah. out of the East that he wanted himself. So he wasn't supporting the Americans in this for purely altruistic reasons. It's important to remember that he had things that he'd already had agreement from uh, Roosevelt that he'd be able to take at the uh, end of the Pacific yeah. War. And uh, these were important objectives for him. And, and we probably mentioned this before, but Stalin certainly is carrying the mantle of the czars. He's going back to the Japanese-Russo uh, War of 1905. He wants to get back things that Japan was able to take from them back then, you know, the warm water ports and that kind of thing. So Stalin has got a lot of historical baggage that he's taken with him. So he has a long list of items that he wants uh, to to show everyone that Russia is now, you know, one of the superpowers. And... Um, that that's just something he's not, he's going to be just as determined on those things as he is on Poland, but he's going to do it in his own way in his own time. And uh, and again, they're even asking for increased um, supplies from the Lend Lease. They're saying we'll go in and help you, but we need even more, you know, war material. So Stalin is purposefully dragging this out, milking it, trying to get as much as he can to strengthen his military because his factories can't produce, uh, even though they've done a lot, they certainly can't produce like the Americans can. So he is milking this in so many different ways for as long as he can because it suits his purposes. The other thing that he wants to get out of this is the ability to support Mao Zedong and the Communist Party in China in the Chinese Civil War versus Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. Uh, obviously, the Soviet Union shared a long border with China, um, so mm -hmm. he's pretty sure that there's going to be a, a civil war there coming up, and he would much rather have the communists in power, um, at least that's, was, <laughs> that's what he thought right. at the time. Uh, sounded sound like uh, a good idea. Yeah, then Chiang Kai-shek... <laughs> Uh, or, or, you know, China's a big uh, prize uh, at this point in time, and um, the, the, everyone wants their party to be the ones in power, so, you know, their economic interests will be aligned. Right. Um, Stalin wants Mao Zedong, but just as much, the, the Americans want, want Chiang Kai-shek, somebody who they think will be more favorable to their economic interests in power. Mm -hmm. It's not just Stalin. But Stalin had another secret. He was keeping up his sleeve. Uh, Truman had the bomb. Stalin had a little secret I hinted at before. In early May, the when the Soviets had got to Berlin, um, they, they told Stalin that they had found and positively identified Hitler's remains mm -hmm. in the ruins of the Chancery Building. 
Now, Stalin kept that information a secret from everybody else, even his own marshal, Zhukov. Um, and he was Damn. fucking with Zhukov. So when, when um, Zhukov... Uh, yeah, he was talking to Zhukov about uh, uh, Stalin. He would say, oh, I wonder where Stalin is. My friend, you, I wonder what happened to Stalin. Where do you think he's hiding? Will he come back? <coughs> Even Zhukov. Sorry, fuck Hitler. Ugh, what yeah. hour are we in? Hour, nearly yeah. hour three. At the end it's of the yeah. My friend is Hitler. I wonder where he is hiding. He might have come back. <laughs> now, the Soviets had buried Hitler's body uh, uh, to sort of keep it a secret they took his jawbone and part of his skull to moscow in case stalin didn't believe them and they matched the jawbone to hitler's dental records but of course we now know well at least we now believe that the skull fragment that they took actually belonged to a young woman Mm. not to hitler at all you uh read about this over the last few years i'm sure you have Not in any great detail. I'm saving that for the end. (laughs) Of World War II show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Well, um, you know, there was, uh, I think, an American... Let me just dig it up here. Uh, The jawbone's connected to the skull bone. Mm. Um. Well, this isn't the story that I remember, but there's there's one story I pulled up here. A University of Connecticut archaeologist, Nick Bellantoni. Um, There was recently DNA tests done. By recently, I mean sort of six or seven years ago. They did DNA tests. Um, This guy, Nick Bellantoni, apparently flew to Moscow to take DNA swabs at the state archive Mm -hmm. uh, from the skull but um, also the blood-stained remains of the bunker sofa on which Hitler and Eva Braun supposedly uh, shot themselves in the head. And uh, he uh, did the DNA analysis and said, yeah, the DNA analysis of the skull proves that it is the skull of a woman... Mm. somewhere between 30 to 40 years of age. Uh, somewhere between 20 and 40 years of age, sorry. Um, also, just the, the quality of the skull. The, the bone is very thin. Male skull bones tend to be thicker. Um, and the sutures where the skull plates come together suggested it was uh, someone under the age of 40. Um, and Hitler was 56 uh, right. at the time he died I think Eva was uh, 33 so it may have been her skull that they took by mistake um, yeah but anyway she took a pill he shot himself yeah yeah apparently according to the uh, some stories I've read Stalin himself was suspicious about whether or not Hitler had actually committed suicide um, or whether or not it was a staged event. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they, they buried the corpse uh, and, and Stalin kept it a, a secret. And he used that knowledge um, uh, to sort of play with uh, Truman and Churchill and the others at Potsdam and in the meetings beforehand with Harry Hopkins. 
whenever somebody talked about Germany to be defeated, he'd say, well, maybe is, is it really defeated? I do not know. Where, where is uh, Hitler? <laughs> we do not know where he is. He, maybe he's still alive with Goebbels in Spain or uh, Argentina. My accent's going here. I don't know what's happening. Wodka, wodka. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe... Uh... <laughs> so, you know, he kept suggesting that Hitler had escaped and had gone to South America right. and, and would, you know, rebuild the, the Nazi army and start the <laughs> war again. And uh, he kept it all. I, I, I was fascinated by this. It, he's, he's like, maybe he's like Napoleon. He will come back, you know. <laughs> so, right. uh, fuck me. That's fascinating, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well let, me, let me pull a Dwight Schrute and go, question. Would you rather have the secret of having the atomic bomb or would you have the secret of thinking you have Hitler's bones? Well, the the atomic bomb, but it wasn't a secret, as we know. It was That's a, true. the worst That's kept true. secret. Yeah. I mean, we, we touched on this in earlier episodes, the fact that Truman was trying to push the Potsdam Conference back as far as possible. You remember, Churchill wanted to have it as early as possible. He wanted to have it yeah. before the UK election. Truman was trying to delay it as long as possible. And obviously the reason was he now knew about the development of the bomb. They didn't ha- they hadn't tested it yet, so they didn't know if it worked. Obviously, it's going to make a big difference in his yeah. tactics at Potsdam if he knows he has the bomb or not. If, if the bomb doesn't work, he needs the Soviets. If the, if the bomb does work, well, maybe he still needs the Soviets, as Nyberg said. Maybe the bomb wouldn't be enough, but also maybe it fucking would be enough. Um, and yeah. maybe he didn't get, need to give away much if he knows that they've got the bomb and no one else does. But, of course, as we all know, Stalin uh, <laughs> pretended not to know anything about it, uh, but uh, actually knew everything about it because Beria, <laughs> Beria had had spies yeah. deep, deep, Vegas deep into the Manhattan Project <laughs> since March of 1942. So they they had known about it longer than Truman knew about it, and they probably had more information on it than Truman did as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things I found interesting is that, you know, these guys, the Westerners, when they take their tour, they're, they're mad at the Germans. They hate them, but then they see the absolute devastation devastation so they pity them but the real question is for for churchill and for truman how much do you help the germans do you help the german people more than you help the russians do you help them more than you help the french or the Poles? so these guys have got a lot of you know i don't know philosophical moral questions to answer uh but again we have to remember that when stalin comes in uh, this is not a Paris of 1919. He's not coming in to make deals. He's coming in for revenge, and he's coming in as a conqueror. And he wants that to be absolutely clear. But I want to keep in mind, I, I want to get back to the bomb and get people just to think yeah. about the implications of the fact that Truman and Churchill didn't deliberately didn't tell Stalin about the bomb. And also Roosevelt had kept it from him as well, like the the development of it. You're supposedly allies with these people. They are developing and then have the successful test of the most destructive weapon in human history that Mm -hmm. completely, completely changes the game. Uh, revolutionizes the future 
of warfare. You're their ally. You've been their ally now since, what, 40, 41? Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, they haven't told you fuck all about it. They've hidden it from you, kept it from you for all these years. Uh, I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about Stalin being paranoid. I'd say for good reason. If, if, if my allies yeah. I know are building the most destructive and have built the most destructive weapon in history and they're not telling me about it, they keep... I mean, what other conclusion are you going to come to other than, well, they're deliberately keeping it from me because they want to use it on me at some point? Well, they the, don't want the, me uh, to have it. Right. Well, the atomic bomb is nothing more than the distrusting icing on the cake, because you have to remember Churchill's been talking shit about the communists since the 1920s. And then there's the famous Truman quote, you know, when the Germans are winning, we should help the Russians. When the Russians are winning, winning, we should help the Germans so they can kill each other. So between statements like that and all the things, horrible things that Churchill has said about communism, then you come up with the bomb. I mean, for, for Stalin, this is a no-brainer. Here is a decades-long pattern of these people not trusting me, not thinking of me as their equals, and they're certainly not going to, if they had their way, let us live in peace. They, they see us as adversarial, and this is just a marriage of convenience that is quickly coming to an end. He has every right to feel the way he does, and it probably doesn't help that he is Russian- Already, and that seems to be a, a part of their cultural makeup. There, uh, that they're just paranoid people, and but they have every right to be. Like, like uh, Brennan said, um, uh, George Keenan said, sorry, Kennan said that uh, the war has brought out the worst parts of the Russian character, and he's absolutely right. And and there's no reason for Stalin to feel any other way than the way he does. Well, and keep in mind too that immediately after the uh, well, the beginning of the Russian Civil War, um, the British and the Americans got involved, <laughs> slightly, invaded in, slightly invaded, to slightly, yeah, yeah, invaded to support the Tsars. So yeah. you know, and it's Stalin personal. was part. Stalin was part of that. So. Yeah, look, there are there are huge ideological differences, and and to me it. it it's ridiculous to blame all of that. And I even got this sense with Nyberg, um, blaming it on Stalin. Stalin, I mean, Marxist ideology and certain Leninist ideology uh, is very clear that capitalists are never going to allow the existence of socialists because their, their interests are not aligned. So they don't trust capitalists from the get-go because of their ideology then when they have their revolution the capitalists come and try and overthrow their revolution on behalf of a fucking corrupt monarchy um right so that's already uh put them in a state of mistrust uh then you know they don't recognize the communist government for nearly two decades decade and a half or whatever um and then this you know yeah, look, Stalin has every right to be fucking paranoid. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I just get a little bit kind of uh, annoyed when people make him out to be some sort of crazy guy. I mean, maybe he was, but not <coughs> being paranoid isn't part of that. He had very fucking good reasons not to trust yeah. the Americans yeah. and the British. Uh, and they kept giving him more reasons not to trust them. 
Right. Well, and Nyberg's um, book had two other points. Uh, one, that Stalin just needed time because, you know, Leninist Marxist, um, ta- Marxist Leninist taught that if you leave the uh, Western powers alone long enough, if you leave the capitalists al- alone long enough, you know, they'll turn on each other and they'll fight each other. So, so Stalin wants to be able to build a defensive wall, let them tear each other down. But Truman was also told um, before Potsdam that if the way things looked with all the destruction and devastation that it was a very good chance that a lot of Europe would turn communist in the next couple of years. Um, and so again, that's just another warning flag to Truman as he's going into Potsdam, looking across the table at Stalin, that Stalin might win just because the situation in Europe is so bad. The people out of desperation might on their own turn to communism. Now, Stalin also knew, thanks to the Cambridge Five, that the uh, Americans and the British weren't really getting along as well as they pretended. He'd already seen that there was sort of a chill in their relations at Yalta, and this has just accelerated now that Truman's in power. He's obviously getting Mm -hmm. detailed information. He probably has a better view of how Truman sees Churchill than Churchill (laughs) knows how Truman sees him. And as I've mentioned, uh, both in the Neuberg interview and earlier, Churchill wasn't in his best form either. His ability to concentrate, his alcoholism uh, seemed to have, uh, well, concentration has declined, the alcoholism has risen. Anthony Eden, in his diary, wrote, Winston was very bad. He had read no brief and was confused and woolly and verbose. Uh, Alexander Cadogan, the permanent undersecretary of foreign affairs from the United Kingdom, uh, said that even on important matters, Churchill talked irrelevant rubbish. They both agreed they'd never seen Winston worse. Now, Churchill, being the arrogant fucker that he was, had sort of predicated his strategy at Potsdam on his own personality and power of persuasion. Yeah. Uh, which is also the way he tried to win the British election, the UK election, um, and both failed dramatically. Um, <laughs> now, I mean, we know, we've known all along that Stalin doesn't give a fucking shit about Churchill's eloquence right. or anything. I mean, he pretends to like him. At the end of Yalta, remember they had a big party, gave him a toast, and he's like, Winston, you are my favourite human being. I want to suckle your nipples. And Churchill was like, oh right. my God, I'm going to cry. Um, Stalin's obviously been playing him all along, just playing on his ego, really. And we know that Truman has no time for him either. But um, Beria uh, himself later wrote that of all the Western leaders, Churchill had the best understanding of Stalin and succeeded in seeing through almost all his manoeuvres. But when Mm. he is quoted as suggesting that he gained an influence over Stalin, I cannot help smiling. It seems amazing that a person of such stature could so delude himself. <laughs> it's coming. This Damn. is coming from Berea, the serial rapist. Yeah. Like when the serial <laughs> rapist doesn't have any respect for you. Uh, you know, That's you're low down in, the, yeah. <laughs> down in the totem yeah. pole there. When, the, when oh, even God. the serial rapist is going, dude, you're, you're fucked up. You know that, you know okay. it's time to look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. It's time to reassess. Yeah, put the bottle down. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Now, as uh, 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 Mr. Nyberg pointed out, the other key thing Churchill was trying to do here, or his, uh, the other key plank of his strategy at Potsdam was hoping that he could cement the special relationship with the United States, but that also failed. Truman, like Roosevelt, really refused to discuss anything important with Churchill unless Stalin was also in the room, so he didn't piss Stalin off. And there's this hilarious story uh, with a photo session that I know you want to talk about, Ray. Is this the uh, church, excuse me, church, the chair scooting contest of 1945? Yes, the uh, chair shuffling championships of 1945. <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess I guess maybe if 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 you can't be close to someone emotionally, you can be close to them physically. Let proximity do your work for you. So as as they're as they're together, Churchill is scooting his chair ever so close to Truman. Truman eventually picks up on this, and I guess in, in, in retaliation, ever so subtly and constantly scoots his chair ever so closer to Stalin. Stalin's looking at both of these guys and probably laughing his ass off on the inside, but they're literally trying to jockey for position. One is sucking up to the, to the, the British, uh, sucking up to the American. The American is sucking up to the, to the Russian, and the Russian is just laughing at both of them, enjoying the little contest. There's actually a name for that game, Ray. Do you know what it is? Mm. Uh, it's no. called the Le- It's called the Lido Shuffle. Well, um, after the chair shuffle, um, I there's just a couple of other slides against Churchill I wanted to cover. We've talked a little bit about Truman and sheet music, as I think we covered uh, in the Truman bio episode. Truman was a quite a good pianist, um, uh-huh. passing passingly good pianist. On the right. third night of the conference, um, the Americans had a dinner that Churchill and Stalin attended. Truman chose uh, the the music himself, um, and and he deliberately pissed, tried to piss Churchill off. Apparently, um, he chose Chopin because he knew that Stalin liked Chopin. Now mm-hmm. that tells you everything you need to know about Stalin. He likes Chopin. I mean. Mm. Beautiful music. You, you can't be a murderous dictator like Chopin. I, I think that's pretty much in the dictator book. When you when you get to page forty seven <laughs> of the guide how to be a brutal right. dictator, it says really you know yeah, you're not listening to Chopin, man. It's, right. it's too beautiful. It's too too yeah. pretty. It's going to melt your heart. You can't stay away from that Aww. if you want to be a brutal dictator. Um, Churchill didn't like it. Now you got two people here. One likes Chopin. The other doesn't. Which one? Do you think is mm. is the you know yeah yeah which one yeah let's 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 play a little bit of Chopin like this is this is what uh, Stalin liked and Churchill didn't. Stalin used to like to listen to that when he was having people shot. True. Uh, right. 
<laughs> it's like something out of a Tarantino <laughs> film. He's got that music playing while yes. he's slicing people's ears off with a blood. Uh, I don't know. Beautiful uh. music. I can't understand why Churchill didn't like it. But doesn't stop there. So Churchill, fucking Truman, chooses Chopin first. Then he sits down at the piano himself and starts playing um, Paderewski's Minuet in G. Now, uh, Paderewski was a Polish uh, composer and also served as Poland's prime minister in between World War One and World War Two. Churchill hated Paderewski. Uh, they had argued over the boundaries of Poland at the Paris Peace Conference. Truman had performed with Paderewski when he was 12 years old, Truman that is, um, in Kansas Damn. City. So he obviously knew Churchill didn't like Paderewski, so he played a piece of his music again. We are led to believe, at least by Nyberg, yeah. deliberately to just sort of, I was a fuck you to Churchill. So, oh God, I, mean, I, yeah. I, I like Truman a little bit more now. That's uh, a, uh, <laughs> Truman holds movie, up his like middle it. finger. He says, this is for you. He turns his finger <laughs> sideways. This is for the horse you rode in on. <laughs> you British cunt. <laughs> now, uh, just to finish up this episode, Churchill's foreign minister, Anthony Eden, was totally overworking with Churchill at this point. He wrote in his diary, I'm beginning to seriously doubt whether I can take on foreign office work again. It's not the work itself, which I can handle, but the racket with Winston at all hours. Yeah. He's sick to death. Now, uh, at the same time, you mentioned earlier that Eden had stomach ulcers, which were causing his problems. His mother had recently died, and he found out while at Potsdam that his own son had been killed in, in Burma. So not Damn. a good time for him, and he's about to lose the election. But that's where we're going to finish up. One other guy who's at Potsdam we haven't talked much about, Clement Attlee, is there. He was invited along as an observer, and everybody is ignoring him because, quite frankly, it's easy <laughs> to ignore Clement Attlee. Um, the sheep in sheep's clothing, as Churchill may or may not have referred to him. Um, but uh, the next episode is going to be all about Clement Attlee because it's now Attlee's world. We're all just living in it. That's right. That's right. Um, I want to read a review before we go. We're running out of time, but I'll read a review. Um, this is from the author More Good Music from the United States. Uh, he or she writes, absolutely phenomenal podcast. I've been meaning to write this review for a while, and I can say without a doubt that listening to Ray and Cam rant through the Cold War has been one of the highlights of my podcasting experience. I've literally, and I do mean literally, Ray, <laughs> listened to about 40 episodes in two and a half weeks. Cameron oh provides a coherent narrative to a time period that is anything but, with Ray jumping in and providing extra details as needed. Come for the history, stay for the enlightening tangents, classic music selection, and all-round good time. I've been listening since the Caesar show, and I'm glad to say that this is another show that does not deserve a statio. Nice work, more good music Thank shoes you. and email uh, with your address. We'll send you a token of our appreciation. That is the end of episode 66. We'll be back next week with episode 67, which, as I said, will be the Clement Attlee show. Meanwhile, don't forget to check out our Renaissance show, therenaissancetimes.com. Follow us at Facebook. Look for Cam and Ray podcast on Facebook. Uh uh, the Europe tour, get in on that yeah. shit. That's going to be party. I'm going to be <laughs> in the United States 
in January, uh, probably January 18, 19, 18 to maybe yeah. 23, 24. If, if you want to come and hang out with me, if they let you me in, yes. If you want to come in, if not, I'll, I'll just call Michael Nyberg at the US Army War College, get him to pull some strings. Um, if you want, if you want to hang out, I'm going to be in LA, I think around about the 18th, might do a dinner in LA. Then I'm going to be, and Ray is also going to join me in Raleigh, North Carolina for a few days, uh, sort of 19, 20, mm-hmm. 21 of January. Um, and then I might do something else afterwards. I don't know. You might go to New York, might go to Toronto, might go to DC looking for offers. If you want to entertain me in your villa, um, Stalin style, uh, right. shoot me an email, make me an offer. I'm going to be in the United States. I want to be entertained. Uh, show me something I haven't seen before. Promise me a good time and I am yours. Yeah. It's that easy. It's that, it's that easy. All right. Uh, I guess we're out then. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.